0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Collie Bristow's US-UK podcast, a series which explores some of the nuances of the US-UK tax and estate planning world and attempts to break down some of the more complicated issues into manageable chunks. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, please do leave a rating or review on whatever platform you're listening on. It really does help other people hear about the show. Today, we're going to consider the concept of domicile, what it is, why does it matter, and how and why do the US and UK treat this concept differently? I have the pleasure today of being joined by Holly Paling from the accountancy firm Buzzacott. Holly is a director in the expatriate tax services team, advising both US and UK individuals on cross border tax compliance. Like me, the issue of domicile is undoubtedly central to many, if not all, of Holly's clients, and I couldn't think of a better person to join me today to discuss this topic. Holly, how are you?
1: I'm great. Thanks, Aidan, and thanks for having me on your podcast. I'm really looking forward to discussing domicile. And ah, it's with one you?
0: of the most exciting topics. <laughs> so, When I'm thinking about domicile, and I have to start from sort of basics with clients, one of the first places I have to start with is effectively what domicile is, and almost more importantly, what domicile isn't. How do you tend to distinguish or, you know, sum up domicile in in a couple of sentences to sort of differentiate it from the other topics like residency? Yeah,
1: so domicile, when I'm thinking about it, is your permanent intention to remain so that could be quite different to your resident, because you could be resident in different places, all sorts of different places during your life. But domicile, where you kind of permanently intend to end up, that's that's the distinction for me. How about you?
0: Yeah, no, agreed. I mean, I mean, there are a lot of people, for example, who live in the UK exactly as you say, who are resident here, but who are not domiciled here. And certainly, uh, up until a few years ago, you could be domiciled here. You could be uh, living here, but domiciled somewhere else for your entire life and actually benefit from some quite favourable tax provisions, which we can come on to later. You can still be a resident here for your entire life, but a domiciliary of somewhere else. And yes, one might inform the other, but they're certainly quite separate topics. And you and I actually were just chatting um, offline before we started recording, sort of discussing both that there are tax and non-tax consequences of being a domiciliary for both US and UK tax purposes. In this podcast, we're going to largely focus on the tax consequences of being a domiciliary or a non-domiciliary, but there are um, some non, non-tax consequences as well that can arise from it. But this being a, a sort of a, a principally a tax planning podcast, it's probably the more interesting of the topics, but you know, we'll see where we get to. Both the US and the UK, I, I think you'd agree, Holly, the, the, the fundamental characterization of domicile, as you described it, about your indefinite permanent intentions, underpin the concept of domicile in both jurisdictions, but it's about how each country interprets what that means and what the rules are that you use to assess whether someone is a domiciliary. They each do it quite differently. So for UK purposes, do you go through a domicile assessment or if you're advising someone a domicile the same way I would, starting with the domicile of origin?
1: Yeah, so we start off looking at the domicile of origin. So it's a fairly you kind know, of old and archaic concept. You take that domicile of origin off your father at your birth, assuming that your parents were married at your birth. So sometimes that's a fairly straightforward set of questions. Though, that your you know your father's family had been in the UK for the whole of their lives, going back, and you've been in the UK and you've got no intention to leave. And that's a fairly straightforward set of answers. But sometimes domicile of origin can be a bit more complex. So you have a multi-jurisdictional family. And as a lot of our clients, you know, they were maybe born in the US and they've come over here to the UK. So that's when it gets a bit more complicated. Sometimes we can come to that determination or sometimes it will get a, a lawyer such as yourself involved when it gets a bit, a bit, a bit more fiddly.
0: Yeah, I certainly if you have a family that have, immigrated to the UK, and maybe a child has been born only a couple of years after they've arrived here, there's this sort of question of, you know, at the point at which the child was born, did you intend to remain here when you had your child? Were you a UK domiciliary when you were born? Partially... That's a question you tr- you sometimes answer with hindsight because if the family then lived here for a successive forty years, you would say, well, of course, when you moved here, you had a child and then you lived here for forty years. But at the time that you had the child, you may not have had that attention. So it it, it is a difficult thing to assess sometimes. That though becomes sometimes a moot point because someone's domicile of origin is then overridden by another form of domicile. It can't ever be extinguished entirely—a domicile of choice—but it can be overridden by one of a number of other different framings of domicile, the most common of which is a domicile of choice, which largely means, to your to your point previously, Holly, where one intends to remain indefinitely, which might be in the country in which they were born, but it might be a different country entirely. So the American who comes to the UK, does that American intend to remain indefinitely in the UK? As a subjective state of their mind, could that person say that they intend to remain here indefinitely? But I'm I think you'd agree, Holly, HMRC has difficulty in basing a tax code based on a subjective state of mind, because how on earth would you get around someone just saying, well, oh, well of course I'm not a UK domiciliary, I don't think I am, and I've stated it, therefore it must be true.
1: Yes, um, and it's that it's, there's no black and white tests. So I, I think HMRC have possibly got light of this, or they definitely have got light of this. <laughs> so they've kind of clamped down on these people. I mean, technically speaking, under the choice rules, you could live here for 40 years in the UK, And say, well, you know, I'm going to go back to the US when I retire or die. So therefore I don't have a UK domicile. They've got around that by bringing in the deemed domicile rules in the UK. Um, And the main intention for those is to catch people who've been here a long time. And by a long time, kind of their rule is out of the last 20 tax years, have you been in resident in the UK for at least 15 of those? And if the answer is yes, then they will treat you as what's called a deemed domicile. So that means that they don't really care about your domicile of origin or choice, they're going to tax you as a deemed domicile person, so that will have inheritance tax and income tax effects.
0: The way I sometimes frame it to clients is that the deemed domicile rules are are kind of like a soft anti-avoidance tax rule, where they say, we don't think you should be allowed to continue to benefit from the tax favourable status that being a non-domiciliary affords. And we're now going to tax you as if you're a UK domiciliary. And when you sort of frame it in those terms, you can kind of see why, because certainly up until, you know, they started introducing stronger and broader concepts of deemed domicile status, one could live for a long time in the UK under really quite favourable terms. And there are examples of wealthy individuals living in the UK, particularly those individuals who the man on the street might say are British and shouldn't benefit from a non-domicile status, but who kind of quote-unquote got away with it. I'm certainly not going to name any names on this podcast, but there may be some th- some uh, people that listeners can think of that sort of has spurred on some of this advancement in the deemed domicile rules. There are other forms of deemed domicile status, and the other one that, is, that, that catches Americans coming to the UK most frequently are those people for whom actually, when I say American, I don't just mean American. And that's people that the UK refers to as formerly domiciled residents or FDRs. Not the same FDR as the Americans' FDR, the President. And those are people who are born in the UK with a UK domicile of origin, who move overseas, acquire perhaps a domicile of choice in the US because they live there for a long time. When that person or if that person resumes UK residence now – that person is no longer subject to the 15 out of 20 rule that Holly mentioned, but instead will be taxed as a deemed domiciliary within the within two tax years of returning. And that catches out, I don't know about you, Holly, but that has caught out quite a lot of people that I've dealt with who don't realize that sort of the resumption of UK residents suddenly means a dramatic exposure to UK taxation that certainly wasn't the case when they left because the rule didn't exist. And now various structures they've created, various bits of a state plan and they put in place all have to be unwound. But to do so it, it self incurs quite a lot of UK tax.
1: I think that's very common for Americans, especially. Um, kind of, you know, they've maybe born over here, they've worked over there for 30 or 40 years, and for been to retire here, and as you said, they've got lots of trusts, which are very common for state tax planning in the US. So it makes it very important to take that moving advice or pre-moving advice you know, a year or two in advance, don't think, oh, I can move here and take it when I get here. We need to be thinking about that one or two years in advance, really.
0: The the joke I make to a lot of American practitioners, uh, sort of based in the States, is if someone enters your office and wants to start talking to you about estate planning, certainly international estate planning, and they've got a British accent, then just have that little red flag that goes off in their head going maybe we should have a little think about some UK tax consequences to this planning as well, particularly if they tell you they've only just stepped off the plane or they're thinking of going back in the near future. Maybe maybe pick up the phone to Holly or pick up the phone to me and we'll let you know whether there's anything you should be worried about. The other thing that's important to mention when it comes to domicile status on a common law basis, not the deemed domicile rules, is where one is actually domiciled. And this is a I guess a technical point that perhaps only we as lawyers, and maybe accountants, Holly, like to get excited about. But strictly speaking, in this podcast, we have referred to someone being UK domiciled. But strictly speaking, one is actually domiciled in one of the three legal jurisdictions of the UK, being England and Wales, and then Scotland and Northern Ireland. And similarly, Holly, an individual is domiciled not in the US, but domiciled in one of the states. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that is correct. Um, Each state has different rules. There's at least 12 that have their own estate tax regime. So that would be on top of ed- any federal estate tax exposure. They'd have state estate tax exposure. There's also very similar rules for income tax purposes too. And where that can be important is you need to be domiciled in a US state. You can't just say I'm domiciled in the US. You need to say which state that was. Then I guess it will be proving, you know, what connection you have and you know, the intention to go back there. And where it can sometimes catch out our clients is the income tax purposes that that can lead on to. So, for example, a state like Maryland is a domicile state. If you're claiming to be non-UK domiciled and making certain tax selections, then that Maryland claiming to be Maryland domiciled, you will be careful on the US side what that's going to mean at income tax level.
0: Yeah. The other point about UK domicile status as regards the US states that I always say to clients is if you are a an individual who has a UK domicile of origin and you travel abroad to the US and let's say you move to New York and you acquire a New York domicile of choice because you intend to remain permanently or indefinitely in New York, that's absolutely fine. And you can maintain that that sort of common law New York domicile status for UK purposes for as long as you want. But if you stop living in New York because you decide you want to go and live in California instead, if you move to California without picking up the intention to remain indefinitely in California, you will lose your intention to remain indefinitely in New York, and your UK domicile of origin will reassert itself until such time as you replace it with another domicile of choice. And I always have to warn US practitioners and... Brits living in the US when they're moving within the 50 states of the US to be very careful about moving and then immediately sort of conducting some estate planning in the new jurisdiction because they could inadvertently find themselves a UK domiciliary in the short gap between them moving between the two jurisdictions. So again, something to take care of if you're a US practitioner and you've got someone with a UK accent who's walked into your door.
1: Yeah, and that, that can be very important. I think often the focus, they'll become kind of obsessed with how are we going to get out of staying, paying income tax in that state? Yeah, as you said, you don't want to then fall into the trap of full UK inheritance.
0: No. Given that we've been talking about the US states, it's probably timely to think about US domicile status from a US perspective. Thus far, we've been talking about how one could be a US domiciliary from a UK perspective. But now, of course, we've got to think about domicile status from a Here, Holly, the experience 90-95% of cases is actually that US domicile status is much easier to deal with as regards US-UK planning because the rule is, if you're a US citizen, you are a US domiciliary and you don't really have to go much farther than that. But it can get a bit more fiddly, can't it, if the person is not a US citizen because there are still ways you can be a US domiciliary.
1: Yeah, so that would include the main one being green card holders. The US green card would give you the kind of, almost permanent right to live and reside and work in the US. Even though they expire, you always have the right to generally renew them. So then the US would say, although you're intending to be here permanently, therefore you're as well. So in pretty much all cases, uh, a green card holder would be viewed as a US domiciled person.
0: That is the case whether that green card holder is living in the US, effectively living under their green card, or they're a green card holder who has moved to the UK, but hasn't relinquished their green card and it's still sitting in a drawer somewhere.
1: Yeah, and that can catch out quite a lot of people as well. They think, oh, maybe I've just got it in that drawer and it's expired and it's not a problem. But one, yeah, that could be an estate tax problem, and also that can
0: catch out income tax people as well. Allegedly, uh, I don't know if it's allegedly or just as a basis of fact, our current prime minister, for example, I think at one point was a green card holder living in the UK. It's also worth pointing out that, you know, the US is a federal system. And Holly, you already mentioned previously that there can be some US tax consequences from where you are domiciled from a US perspective, uh, state by state. And so when we're thinking about US domicile for US purposes, we also have to have regard for the state you live in as well. I mean, there's a fundamental position. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. So always just keep an eye on the income tax position that you're going to be faced by being domiciled or resident in that state.
0: Grand. So the US position is the same sort of conceptually as the UK position that you are domiciled in the jurisdiction in which you have the closest connections. And that largely relates to where you intend to be on a sort of permanent basis. Arguably, as we've discussed, if you're a citizen, you are just automatically closely connected to the US because, I guess, the US thinks, why would you not want to live anywhere else? If you're a green card holder, exactly as you said, Holly, that evidences your ability to remain indefinitely in the US, and I guess, therefore, the US thinks, therefore, that must mean that you want to remain indefinitely in the US, and so that means you have the closest ties there. It is possible, I've always understood, that you can technically, on a technical level, be a US domiciliary despite the fact that you are not a citizen or a green card holder. But I guess between our respective practices, if we count back and look back at our clients, the number of clients for whom they are a US domiciliary without being either a green card holder or a citizen are probably quite slim, would you say?
1: Yeah, it's quite a small window of people. I mean, my first question would be, on what basis are they in the US? <laughs> <laughs> what visa are they on? Uh, maybe you, it's... No,
0: not you on. say that, but there is a wealth of case law in the UK around the middle and the end of the Second World War, um, where there were various people living in the UK as sort of asylum seekers and and, and, and who fled war-torn parts of Europe uh, to come live in the UK, and their immigration status was, shall we say, not set in stone. It wasn't exactly concrete. HMRC was still absolutely happy to tax them as, as, as domiciliaries, and and it was sort of you know a, a well-known thing in UK estate planning law that one's immigration status does not preclude one from being a UK domiciliary, or vice versa if you're living abroad. I think that probably covers the abstract concepts of domicile, which again, I think exercise lawyers and maybe accountants when we get to talk to clients about what we think their domicile is and whether they're domiciled in New York or California. What clients really want to know is, so what? What's the consequence of being a domiciliary? And I'd like to take the opportunity to come back next time with Holly to discuss that in more detail because it deserves a sort of a, a section all by itself. In the meantime, it just leads me to thank Holly for being here for this first half of this discussion, uh, and thank you to you, the listener, for joining us this time. Please do come back next time when we'll be picking up this concept of domicile uh, again. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you.